With that said, before we go to God's word, let's go to him as a body, as a church, in prayer, seeking his blessing on our church. So will you pray with me now? Almighty God, we come before you, gathered as your people, and we come and present our requests to you, to be made known to you, to ask for your blessing in our lives. Father, we ask that you would work in our church this year. Father, we pray that 2023 would be a year that this church body grows in godliness. May we grow in understanding your word and living lives that reflect the gospel of grace that we see in scripture. Father, I pray, we pray for our body today that you would lead us to be constantly and repent, uh, regularly repenting of our sin as a body. God, as we do so, may we be people of integrity, people of contentment, people of purity, as we see in the text today. Would you refine us, O oh God? Would you teach us to live according to your statutes, we pray. Father, we pray for those who are not with us today, those who are unable to gather with the saints in this gathering. We pray that you would be with them, O oh God. We pray that you would keep them and preserve them in their faith until the time comes that they can return to meeting with us. Father, we pray for those who are hurting physically. We pray for your healing on them today, O oh God. Father, we pray for our sister Brenda Korn as she is just hurting this week in her body and has, is doing well but has fallen. We pray that you would strengthen her body this week. Father, for those who are in our body who have colds and viruses, we pray that you would heal them. But Father, we pray that you would also work in us spiritually, that we would grow even through these trials. And now, oh God, we pray as we go to your word that you would teach us. Would you open our hearts that we might be ready to hear and receive what your word is saying, O oh God, and then apply it to our lives? And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, Leon Shimkent was a New York City publisher who discovered the modest Dale Carnegie teaching night classes at a local YMCA in New York City. Leon was so impressed with the course that he discovered, which Carnegie was teaching, that he persuaded Carnegie to allow him to record notes and turn it into a book. Carnegie's book was on human relations. You might have heard, heard of it. The title is How to Win Friends and Influence People. It sold exceptionally well through 17 editions in its first year alone. And then it went on to be translated into 31 languages and to sell over 30 million copies. It became one of the best-selling books of all time. Now, not everything about this book is wrong, but there's a reason that it is so popular. Just listen to some of the chapter titles of Carnegie's book. He teaches us on how to make people like you instantly. A simple way to make a good first impression. How to avoid making enemies. 
an appeal that everyone likes, and how to let the other person save face. I would argue that one of the reasons that this book has sold so well is that it represents the dogma of our time, the common religion, which is be nice and don't offend others. Now, contrast this book and this message from Dale Carnegie with another man named Hugh Latimer. Now, Latimer lived earlier. He lived in the 1500s. He was a chaplain and a reformer, and he had a profound impact on shaping the Reformation in Britain. He was not invited to preach at the YMCA, but was invited to Hampton Court with King Henry VIII. The story goes that when invited, his preaching offended King Henry VIII, and he was commanded by the king to come back and preach again and make an apology to the court. So Latimer went back the following Sunday, and he did preach again, but he first addressed himself at the beginning of his sermon. So not unlike Dale Carnegie, he gave himself a little bit of self-help guidance. Listen to how he started his sermon, talking to himself in front of the king. He said this, Hugh Latimer, do you know whom before you stand today? To the high and mighty monarch, the king's most excellent majesty, who can take away your life if you offend him. Therefore, take heed that you do not speak a word that may displease. But then consider well, Hugh, do you not know from whom you come, upon whose message you are sent? Even the great and mighty God, who is all present and beholds all your ways, and who is able to cast your soul into hell. Therefore, take care that you deliver your message faithfully. It's reported that he then gave King Henry the same sermon that he had preached the week before, only this week with more energy and more zeal. Not surprisingly, Dale Carnegie ended his life as a multimillionaire. Hugh Latimer was burned at the stake for his faithful role in the English Reformation. Friends, today we come to a section in Luke's Gospel where the main character, if you were listening to Chris read, is not a Dale Carnegie type. He is not seeking to win friends and influence people, but more of a Hugh Latimer who is fearful of God and therefore calling people to repentance. If you're new here today, we are studying Luke's account of the life of Jesus Christ. And where we happen to be in today's passage is a bit of a hard passage. But rather than soften it for you, I would rather just show you honestly what the Bible says and what John the Baptist is unafraid to say. And I think it honors you to shoot straight with you about the claims of Scripture and let you deal with it. So listen for yourself as I explain to you the message of John the Baptist, which is repent from your sin and look to Christ. 
Let me say that again. Repent from your sin and look to Christ. That's the main point of my message today. If you haven't already turned your Bibles to Luke chapter 3, we'll be in verses 1 through 20. We've already read the text, so I'm just going to read sections as I move along. To help you follow through my sermon on this call to repentance, I'm going to point out four themes. Number one, John's ministry of repentance. Number two, the demands of repentance. Number three, the urgency of repentance. And number four, the faith of repentance. My prayer is that as we see the ministry of John the Baptist, God will give us greater faith in Christ, leading us to dramatically turn from our sin. So consider first, number one, John's ministry of repentance. The chapter begins a new section in Luke's gospel as he moves his focus from the narrative birth, the narratives of Jesus' birth to focusing on Jesus' public ministry. And so in verses 1 and 2, Luke introduces this new section with six different rulers. You'll see there in the text. And he does this to anchor us, his readers, in history. He's explaining exactly when Jesus' ministry and John's ministry here took place. This, therefore, is a story of global significance. You see there in the text, these leaders. And it's not just for the Jews with Annas and Caiaphas, but also for the wider world. And, you just, and yet, despite these men of worldly significance, verse 2 tells us, the word of God came to a man in the wilderness— John, the son of Zechariah. We know Zechariah and John from the previous chapters of this book that we've been working through. Verse 3 tells us that John went into the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So, John was a preacher. He preached and he baptized. And he called people to repent, to turn around. Repentance is turning from sin to Christ. This was John's ministry. So in one sense, John's ministry here is the same as all gospel preaching. He was pointing people to look to Jesus Christ and to turn from their sin. Faith in Christ, which is always accompanied by repentance, is what brings, verse 3, forgiveness of sins. In this sense, John's preaching is nothing new. But in another sense, John's ministry has a special historical significance in the story of redemption. You see, only one person in all of time would preach repentance when the world was on the threshold of the public ministry of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so, this unique ministry of John is described with a quote from Isaiah 40 which we see here in verses 4 and 5. Written hundreds of years prior to John, we read about the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways. I wonder if you've ever driven through a mountain range. I remember taking a college group back in college from Pennsylvania out to St. Louis, and we drove through the Appalachian Mountains in western Pennsylvania. And as we drove those student vans cutting through the mountains, it was obvious 
although it still felt precarious, that someone had gone before me, before us, and had cut a path for vehicles to drive through the mountain range. The road had been leveled, and bridges and tunnels were made. A way was prepared to go through the mountain. This is the picture of what God is doing in John's ministry. He was preparing a supernatural highway for Christ's ministry, a way being prepared. But notice, it is of just divine proportion. Paths were not just being made, being made straight, but every valley was being filled up, and every mountain and hill was being leveled. The idea is that the work that is being done is monumental. This is the picture, that when John preaches repentance by the Holy Spirit's power, he is exposing the sin of the people, and he's showing them their need of their Savior, and he is like leveling a spiritual mountain range to prepare for the ministry of Christ. And notice the result in verse 6. We read, All flesh shall see the salvation of God. So this is, by the way, the same promise that we just saw last week, the same wording to Simeon back in chapter 2, verse 30. But no longer is it just Simeon who will see the salvation of God. Now, the prophecy is that all flesh will see this salvation. John is literally paving the way for the ministry of Christ, which will one day just be universal in scope. And so, what does John do? Well, he baptizes people. Verse 3, he proclaims a baptism of repentance. Verse 7, crowds come to be baptized by him. Verse 12, tax collectors come to be baptized by him. Verse 16, he explains that he's baptizing with water. Now, I think that for our church today, it's worth just pausing on this point and just asking, what is it that's happening here? You see, we as a church baptize people as well. It's even in our name. We are the first Baptist church of Boynton Beach. We even have a, a baptismal pool built into our building so that we can baptize people. Hopefully we'll do this again in a few weeks. But it is right, therefore, to ask, how is this baptism that we are seeing here in scripture the same or different from what we have been commanded ourselves to do as a church let me just very briefly just take the next four minutes and give you three ways it's the same and three ways it's different all right so if you're taking notes just three bullet points are coming up on each of those points first how is this the same what we do the same as what john is doing number one both baptism by the church, commanded to the church, and what John was doing, look in faith to the Messiah. Both are looking in faith to Christ. It's what we see happening in verses 15 and 16 here. Secondly, both uh, today and John's baptism, both of them may um, require a credible repentance from sin. This is the point of the passage. True and verifiable repentance. Same is true with baptism. When you come to Christ, you must be turning your back on sin and then be baptized into Christ. So for anyone to follow Christ here, we're going to look for this. We're going to look that we are a people, a congregation that is together evidencing repentance and then being baptized into this community. Third, 
Notice that both baptism today and John's baptism are public acts of immersion. The meaning of the word baptism here is to immerse under water, to submerge. He tells us we're do is doing this in verse 16. It symbolizes a complete death. And that's what's happening. Well, how is it different? I think this would be helpful. See, the baptism that is commanded to the church is different in a couple ways. Number one, it's different because of the authority of the baptism, the name by which it's under. John's baptism was looking to the Messiah, but it was in his name. Christ was not yet publicly identified. That's why we read later in Acts about John's baptism. But we are commanded in Matthew 28 to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's publicly identifying now with Jesus Christ. Number two, the command of baptism for us is different in the type of gathering that it creates. Church, it is so important that you know this. Baptism is part of what creates our gathering as a church. It is the, the entryway, the entry door into the fellowship of a local church. Acts tells us that as many were baptized, were being added into the church. Baptism is that entry symbol into the church. And so as some have said, baptism is a bit like a passport. It's a, it's a, it's a public statement of being a citizen of the church. So you can come and tell me that you are a citizen of France, but if you don't have a passport, I don't have to let you into the country because I don't know that to be true. Baptism is the act that publicly tells the world around us, I'm of this kingdom. I'm publicly identifying with the church. All right, number three. Bap the command of baptism for us is different in the new covenant it re represents. Because John's baptism, though guided by the Holy Spirit, was still under the old covenant. It was looking forward to a promised Messiah. They were on the threshold of Christ's ministry. But we today have a spiritual baptism, Romans 6, that our physical baptism reflects in this new covenant that is ours. So it is therefore, it is a seal of the new covenant that we have in Christ. All right, mini lesson over. Let's move on. I wanted to make that clear. So let's, let's move back to the wilderness. Let's go back to this man, this, this prophet who's, who's out there, and he's, he's preaching to these crowds, and he's, he's baptizing them. What is the message he's preaching? Notice, number two, we see the demands of repentance. The demands of repentance. You see, John's words to these crowds that were coming out were harsh. They were a bit demanding. Look at how it unfolds. In, in verse 7, we see there he's in the wilderness. Crowds are coming out to be baptized. Most would think that a crowd forming after, around your preaching is, is a good thing. We would like that here. But, but John, what does he do? He calls them a brood of vipers. All right, you have to understand this. A brood is a family of young hatchlings. That's what this word means. It's, it's a nest of little babies. So here's the picture of what John is saying. He says, I've happened upon a nest of baby venomous snakes. Now, you don't have to be a theologian to realize that this is not a compliment, right? 
This is not what you normally tell people. This is not what we will tell people as they come to our starting point membership class. You see, to call someone a son of a snake was a bit like calling them the son of the devil. Why is he being so harsh to say that he's happened on this nest of, of babies that will grow up to be venomous and poisonous? What about them was that deadly? Well, he tells us the reason. He says, they wanted to flee from wrath without bearing fruit. Let me say that another way. The crowds wanted freedom from punishment without life change. This is scary. Can you see why they were vipers? They had venomous poison in their understanding that would grow up to kill. They wanted freedom from punishment without life change. Friends, this is not just true in John's day, but it's true in ours as well. How many of us would be happy to say a prayer, escape wrath, and not have to change our lives? Dietrich Bonhoeffer called this cheap grace rather than biblical costly grace. This is what he says. He says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism, without church discipline. Communion, without confession. Absolution, without personal confession. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in a field. And for the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, for which the merchant will sell all his goods. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. John the Baptist says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Fruit in a tree shows that there is life in the tree. So also, repentance shows that you are spiritually alive. Or to put it differently, if you are harboring unrepentant sin, if you are right now harboring unrepentant sin, if you are choosing not to turn your back on your sin, then you should be very concerned. You, you should have no assurance that your faith before God is real. Very practically, by the way, this is just one reason why membership in a local church is so important. This is why Jesus teaches it in Matthew 16 and 18 and 1 Corinthians 5, is that we need a local church to affirm the credibility of one another's faith and to hold us accountable to continually repenting from our sins. The, the local church, in that sense, is the orchard where the fruit-bearing trees grow up together. So do not attempt to flee from wrath, to come without, away from punishment without bearing the fruits of repentance. Well, what are these demands? What are these fruits that John points to? He gives us very, several very practical examples. First, generosity. Jump down to verse 11. To the crowds, he says, whoever has two tunics, two coats, is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. So, do you have more food in your house today than you can eat today? guessing the answer is probably yes. 
then you should be thinking how to share what you have with those who don't. You should be giving to those who don't have. Look at integrity, verse 13. To the tax collectors, he says, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Now, this would have been just countercultural for these tax collectors. The tax collector's position in society was set up to make it easy to profit from dishonest gain. But John was saying, no, collect honestly. Take only what is yours. So, what about you? Is there any place in your life where you take more than is yours? In your job, do you pad the numbers in your favor? On your income taxes, do you fully report honestly all that you have earned? When you submit expenses to your employers, do you round up or do you round down? Friends, integrity like this stretches to even the smallest parts of your life. Taking an extra refill at the restaurant that you didn't pay for. Or saying your child is younger than she is in order to get a discount. Or taking time from your employer by slipping out of work earlier than you should. I sat with one brother last year who, who shared how he told his boss that he wouldn't pad the numbers on his invoices in order to make up for inflation, and he wouldn't subtly overcharge their clients. His boss wasn't happy. The next day, he was fired. This type of honesty is costly, but it's what's right. Look at another fruit. Down in verse 14, we see fair authority. He said to the soldiers, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. This, too, was radically countercultural. Soldiers would use their power for their good. Their authority brought benefits. And so, what about employers here today? Or even more personal, what about parents? Do you use your authority and the threat of your power to increase your ease? Or do you use your authority without threat, without manipulation, for the good of those under you. Verse 14, be content with your wages. Rather than twist their power, these soldiers should be thankful for the wages they have. This is not saying that it's hard, it's wrong to work, to earn more, but there must be contentment in your heart as you do. So let me ask you, would your fellow employees say that you are content with your wages? Would your children say that, say that they have content parents? Even if you don't work outside the home, if you're here as a homemaker, would your friends say that you are content with your family's standard of living? This is, this is getting heavy. This is a call to repentance that stretches into so many areas of our lives, does it not? It's tangible, it's concrete. Look down at the end of the passage. It was also costly. Verses 19 and 20, we read, But Herod the Tetrar, who had been reproved by John for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the thing, evil things that Herod had done, added this to them, that he locked up John in prison. And so here, John is making another demand for repentance. His calling people to purity. Herod had taken his brother Philip's wife. He had lust for another woman. He gave 
in to his appetite for sexual satisfaction. And verse 19, John reproved him for it. So what about us? What about you? Is your life free from central sin? Do you honor the marriage bed and keep it holy? Hebrews 13. Are you faithful with your body, with your mind, with your thoughts, with your eyes, with your phones? Do you struggle with this area or with any of these areas of repentance? Don't fight these sins alone. Find a godly church member and confess your sin to them. John's call to repentance was costly, and it was personal, and it cost him his life. We'll see that later. For now, he gets put in prison for preaching this. Well, why such a heavy call? Why would I stand here in front of all of you and give such a heavy call to repentance? Was it worth it? Why wor work to such a degree to be killing sin? Because of the third point in our message today, number three, the urgency of repentance. The urgency of repentance. You see, John understood this. Unrepentant sin brings an ending torment. So we don't make any excuses about the urgency of this call. Look at verse 8. We read, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. So John warns them not to take comfort in their ancestry, their Jewishness. Instead, he quotes from Isaiah. He says, For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. You see, the specialness of being God's people was not that they were children of Abraham, but rather it was because they looked in faith to the coming Messiah, as we'll see in a minute. God could bring dead stones to life if he needed to in order to create his people. In fact, that's what he did. That's what he does now. I wonder how we are tempted to make excuses for our sin. So perhaps complete this sentence in your mind. Sure, I'm not perfect, but... And whatever is on the other side of that but is an excuse for why that sin is not so bad. I'm a good church member, or I'm a good person, or I really intended well, or I'm not as bad as other people. See, John says that lack of fruit, lack of repentance from your sin means impending wrath. Look at verse 9. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So John gives us an illustration. What do you do with a tree in an orchard that doesn't bear fruit? Well, you get your axe and you cut it down. You take it out and you burn it. The, the urgency is even more pointed when John speaks of the coming work of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 17. He says, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So here we have a second illustration showing what Jesus will do. A, a winnowing fork was a bit like a pitchfork. It was what was used to sift grain at harvest time. So the one who's 
bringing in the harvest, the harvester, uses this, this fork to throw grain up in the air. And he did this on the threshing floor. And the, the good grain, the seeds of grain that you'd want to keep, would fall to the ground on the threshing floor as, as he's throwing it up. And because the threshing floor was in such a place that would have wind moving by, the, the chaff, the useless part of the grain, would blow away off the threshing floor. So he would be able to separate that which was good fruit from that which was chaff. And he would go out and he would, he would pull together that chaff and he'd take it away and burn it. But he'd keep the good grain. And so this is a separating process. And this is what Jesus will do. Those who do not have true faith and repentance might be together right now with true believers. They might seem somewhat indistinguishable, the, the grain and the chaff together. But Christ will eventually separate them. And so I must plead with you, with anyone within the sound of my voice today, to turn from your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ. This message of the gospel is serious because sin is serious. But the good news is that even though we all have wronged God, that God sent his son to take the wrath that we deserve on the cross, to bear the pen penalty of our sin, the payment of our sin, so that we would not have to bear this. So that as we look in faith to Jesus Christ, his righteousness becomes ours. And by faith, when he comes and separates us out, that we would be found in him. Our sin would be covered. This verse is heavy for me. Honestly, church, it's been heavy all week to be praying over this. This verse says that the unrepentant will be burned. Here, though, it says with an unquenchable fire. It seems like at this point, John is taking a step away from the illustration because chaff would not be burned with an unquenchable fire. Chaff would be burned with a fire that would last a few moments and then die. According to God's word, the eternal payment for our sin will take an eternity if it is on our account. We can understand this because God is so infinitely perfect. He is so gloriously holy. He is beyond any goodness that you could ever imagine. His, his goodness is wider than the Grand Canyon. His purity is whiter than snow. His holiness is more glorious than the sun. In his perfection, he is always eternally, forever and ever and ever, against evil. And so as one pastor says, God acts out of his own completely consistent opposition to evil. He opposes evil with every fiber of his being, and this opposition is his wrath. And so the wrath, which verse 7 speaks of, means that if you do not turn from your sin, but if you instead embrace evil, you will face an unquenchable fire. Some preachers 
preach on this for far too long. After all, this is only one note of what scripture sounds. Other preachers never preach on this, afraid to clearly explain what God is saying in the text. But I must point it out to you today, not because you want to hear me talk about these things, but because scripture gives it to us to hear. And as humans with finite minds, God's eternal wrath against evil is difficult to consider, is it not? If you struggle with this truth, you're in good company. Many of us do. Let me just suggest three things briefly. One, let it lead you to reflect on God's great holiness, which some, somehow must necessitate this. Number two, let it lead you to long for heaven, where you will better understand this aspect of God, to see him glorified, to realize how evil evil is, and how good God is. And thirdly, let it lead you to run from sin today. Christians, Martin Luther said, all of the Christian life is one of repentance. And so hate your sin. Hate it. Turn your back on it. Hate it with every fiber of your being because it is against our great and holy God. We should conclude. Praise God that while hell is real and God's wrath is serious, we see number four, the hope of repentance. What hope do we have? What hope do you have against this terrible wrath of a perfectly good God? What hope do you have against your besetting sin? What hope do you have for that final day on that, that threshing floor? Beloved, your hope is that your repentance turns not, includes not only turning from sin, but turning to Jesus Christ. So turn to Christ today. Look at verse 15. As the people were in expectation, they were in hope, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. Turn to Christ today. May all of us do this. May we turn to Christ today and behold him again. Turn to Christ today who is mightier. Jesus is the mighty one, John says. All might, all power, all strength are in his hands. And he uses his might to rescue us. So turn to Jesus Christ, who is mightier. Turn to Jesus Christ, who is coming, verse 16. Beloved, have you forgotten this fact that just as he came, he is coming again? John says that he is coming. And we can say the same thing. He is coming back. So turn from your sin and turn to Christ who is coming. 
Turn to Christ, who is infinitely worthy. His worthiness outshines the stars. He is worthy, and you and I are not. He is so worthy that the lowliest task that John could imagine, stooping down and tying his shoe, is something that John is not worthy of doing. Turn to Jesus Christ, who is worthy. Turn to Jesus Christ, who gives us his Holy Spirit. He baptizes us with what? With the very Spirit of God, the second person of the Trinity. Here is a glory beyond understanding. God gives us himself. Turn to Christ because in him we gain the Holy Spirit. Lastly, beloved, turn to Christ for he gathers his people. Verse 17. Oh, to be one of the, the pieces of grain that falls on his threshing floor. Oh, to be gathered up in his arms. Oh, to be gathered up into his barn. This is the hope of repentance. All who turn to him will be gathered up on that final day. We will not just be saved individually. Turn to Jesus Christ, the great gatherer of all his people. He will bring us into his barn. Having repented of sin, we will one day leave all sin behind. Every besetting sin that plagues you will be done with as you are gathered up into his barn. You will be gathered with his people. So turn to Christ. Friends, this is why this hour is so precious as a church. Because Sunday morning represents a small reflection of that great final day when all of us will gather as his church and sing his praises for eternity. Turn to Jesus Christ who will, who will gather up his people. This is why we will sing. He shall return in robes of white. The blazing sun shall pierce the night. We will rise among the saints, our gaze transfixed on Jesus' face. Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Oh, praise his name forevermore. For endless days we will sing your praise. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, our God. Let's pray. Almighty God, we worship Jesus Christ today. We thank you for Jesus Christ, who is mightier, who brings his Holy Spirit, who is worthy of all worship and glory, who leads us into repentance, who is coming again. We worship Jesus Christ, who gathers his people. I pray for any today who are not resting in Jesus Christ. May they turn from their sin and turn to Christ. I pray for us today who know Christ. May we continually turn from our sin and turn to Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Church, would you stand?